I read this week about a young man named Danny who was a college student. His mother was coming to visit him at school. He had just recently moved in with a young lady named Allison. Danny looks at his mom and says, don't worry, mom, don't stress. We're not sleeping together. It's just a way for both of us to save money. This is an arrangement for rent. It's purely platonic. And the mother thinks to herself, there's no way. Allison is so pretty. They go to dinner, they're at dinner, and the mother notices, Danny's mother notices Allison's watch, and she comments on it and says, hey, do you mind if I handle that? I'm looking at a watch just like that. And of course, Allison obliges, she hands hands the watch to Danny's mother, and um, they continue eating. A couple of days pass, and Allison realizes she's missing her watch. She goes to Danny and says, hey, I'm missing the watch, and I think your mother may have it. I'm not accusing her. Maybe she forgot to give it back to me, or it slipped and fell into her purse, something like that. So Danny needed to be nudged again, and then a couple of days after that, he emails his mother, and he says, "Um, obviously, I'm not accusing you of taking Allison's watch, but the fact remains, the watch is missing, and the last time we saw it, you had it on. Danny's mother emails him back and says, obviously, I'm not accusing you of sleeping with Alice, but the fact remains, had she been sleeping in her own bed, she would have noticed the watch that I left right there on her pillow. (laughs) You know, we all know what it's like. To be caught. In fact, since we're going to talk about not Danny and Allison today, we're going to talk about David and Bathsheba, but I think we ought to just breathe a, a sigh of relief and maybe just get in common agreement that we know what it's like. All of us know what it's like to be caught. We have for these number of weeks, six weeks, I believe, been talking about David, the flawed hero, and you knew we'd get here. It's the flawed part of the hero. And we've seen, if you're not familiar with the Bible, I want you to know that David is a central figure in the entire story. David was, we've looked at, he's a shepherd and a musician, a warrior and a king. And so important, in fact, that when people would talk about how, they would describe how important Jesus was, they would say that he's related to David. And David was later described as a man after God's own heart. He wasn't from a royal family, wasn't from a major city, but he was God's chosen king. But this chosen king is about to do something so bad, so deceitful, so twisted, that as it played itself out, he commits adultery, conceives a child, kills a husband, and covers it all up. And what I love about this story is really what I love about the scripture. I told you, I think maybe I said it in week one, but if I wrote a book and I called it the word of God, I would just have all the central characters, women and men, and I would just tell you in black and white how great they were. And I would just set it in front of you and say, hey, live, do, do as they did. And I would just keep it real, real simple. I wouldn't want anybody to be led astray. I wouldn't want anybody to get lax or cavalier or casual in their attitude about it. But yet we look at scripture and we see over and over again that David is like one of many women and men in the scripture. Abraham lied. Noah got drunk. Moses had a short fuse. Jacob lied. Rebecca manipulated. Uh, Rahab was a prostitute. Samson struggled with women. Gideon was a scaredy cat. Jonah ran from God. Martha worried. The disciples fell asleep when they should be praying. The disciples doubted. Peter denied. In the pages of scripture, we see sexual impurity. We see unfaithful spouses, broken families, Suicide and depression. I remember back in the, when I was growing up, kind of 70s and 80s, and I remember there was sort of, it was sort of the beginning of what people have called the cultural wars. I tried to stay out of it, but 
I read and I learned and I noticed there was sort of a debate, somewhat of an argument going on when it came to the television shows specifically that were being produced back then. And there were shows like The Cosby Show. And The Cosby Show got criticized because it was, seemed to be too pure and clean and there were no families like that. Doctor, lawyer, you know, brownstone in Manhattan and everything seemed to be so neat and tidy. And then there, it's, it spawned in reaction, it spawned shows like Roseanne. And the idea there was that that's more like a real person and a real family, right? And there was this idea there, do we, do we portray reality or do we seek to shape culture? And today when it comes to biblical characters and their flaws, what's relieving to me, what's helpful to me, what's ennobling for me is to know that these were women and men like me and like you. And the scripture does it. God chose not to sweep it under the rug, but to highlight it. I would hide it, but God highlighted it. I think there's a reason not for us to say, oh, there's, you know, we shouldn't aspire to something better, but just to show us that there is a portrait of reality. I spent some time this weekend in my hometown. I went to Starkville where I grew up. I did a wedding. I officiated a wedding last night at the Chapel of Memories at Mississippi State. And I just spent some time on the campus. I went for a run yesterday, and when I was running, you're not going to believe this, there were some co-eds, they rolled down their window, and they yelled at me, woo, 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 woo. That happened. I'm in church, I'm not going to lie, right? I mean, that happened. I'm hearing some no ways from the front, but that really happened, and I thought two things in that moment. I thought, number one, I'm going to use this as a sermon illustration, and number two, maybe I'm not just a pudgy, pale pastor past my prime. Maybe, maybe I still got it. <laughs> if you're like me and you go to the, your hometown, there's a, just a processional of memories, vivid memories that come back. When I was a little kid, I remember when I started liking girls and I remember when I started writing them notes, I would take song lyrics and I'd either just directly write the song lyrics or I would put my own spin on it, you know, when I wanted to be creative. And I'm just telling you, we've come a long way from the Beatles, I want to hold your hand, to Beyonce and Brittany and Bruno. In fact, I've done some thinking with some song lyrics recently. <laughs> Bruno Mars sings about locked out of heaven. Some guy sings, take me to church. And Fifth Harmony sings, work from home. And I'm smart enough as I looked at the lyrics to realize they ain't talking about heaven, they ain't talking about church, they ain't talking about work. Bruno Mars, you bring me to my knees. You make me testify. You can make a sinner change his ways. Open up your gates because I can't wait to see the lights. Bruno Mars in Locked Out of Heaven. Take me to church. I'll worship like a dog at the shrine of your lies. I'll tell you my sins and you can sharpen your knife. My church offers no absolutes. She tells me worship in the bedroom. If Fifth Harmony's work, 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 work. How's it go, Jeff? Let's put it into motion. I'll give you a promotion. We'll turn the bedroom into ocean. It occurred to me that this has little to do with fourth quarter sales reports or accounts payable or receivable. But we live in a society where, man, it's just dripping. It saturates everything. I'm raising three kids. And recently in talking to God, I believe God, not in an audible voice, but I believe he was asking me as a parent and a pastor, am I willing to live differently? Am I willing to be courageous? Am I willing to stand even if I'm in the vast minority? John Mayer said these very words pretty recently. 
When I watch porn, if it's not hot enough, I'll make up backstories in my mind. This is my problem now. Rather than meet somebody new, I'd rather go home and replay the amazing experiences I've already had. What that explains is that I'm more comfortable in my imagination than I am in actual human discovery. Recently at Walgreens, I was in the cosmetic section looking for some razors. You know, I got to keep it clean and tight. Noticed a couple of middle school girls. And they were roving that section and they were embarrassed. And I could tell they were waiting for me to leave the aisle. I told Susan, I'm not going anywhere for a while. I'm going to stay right here. I wanted to make it really embarrassing for them. And they, they tried and they realized I was hanging around and they were in a hurry and embarrassing. I heard, in fact, I heard one of the middle school girls say to them, this is so embarrassing. And they grabbed condoms off the shelf. I sat down only a couple of weeks ago with a young man, 21 years old, who's using Facebook as a way to lure young teenage girls and make a play on them. He said to me, my, my heart is so sick. I know of a young lady who got pregnant, early teenager, and her boyfriend told her, you better get an abortion or I'll break up with you. And she told me, I never knew my heart could hurt so much. I have a pastor friend in Indiana. Their church is walking through something with a family. A 14-year-old girl, her boyfriend asked her to send him new pictures of herself. She did. I don't get this. He forwarded them to several of his buddies, and that family has slapped him with a criminal lawsuit. Rightfully so. Not too long ago, I attended a sexaholic meeting where grown men, professionals, blue-collar guys, sat in a circle. And the refrain was a common one. I've watched so much porn that nothing arouses me anymore. And one story after another of humiliating embarrassment, money and dignity being sacrificed at the altar for cheap thrills. Scripture asks a question in Proverbs 6, 27. It says, can a man take fire in his lap without his clothes being burned? Church, what's the answer? The answer is no, but we live in a society that says yes. That's why this story, I'm so glad it's in there. We need this story today. And while it's easy to blush and be shy and look away, and here's what I want to say. I believe today's sermon, I hope I hadn't violated it yet, but I think it's rated E for everyone. Researchers say that the average age that a kid looks at porn now is 10 years old. So I think it's healthy for us to have this conversation and healthy for us to have more in the future. This story of David, we've told you, man, he's been, we've, we've highlighted the virtues, stayed clear mostly of the vices. But here today we read about, we read about his relationship, if you call it that, his power play with someone under his dominion. The experts tell us before we look at the passage, I'm just going to put it up, before we look at the passage, the story, the experts tell us that there's really two, two times in life when you're more prone to sexual sin. The first time is when um, stress is high, when you're going through a stressful period. And the second time is when you're in a blessed period, when things are going well. Those two seasons are when sexual sin is most appealing. For David, he was king. 
Saul, his great nemesis, the king that went before him, the king that turned bad, the king that was paranoid and angry and jealous of him, the, the king that sent assassins after him, that threw a spear at him a couple of times, that tried to kill him. That king Saul sadly had died on the battlefield. What's really sad is he took his own life at Geboim on the battlefield. So Saul, it's, that's behind him. He's the king. He's reigned as king of Judah for seven and a half years and now king of Israel, probably going on 20. So he's probably 50 years old when this happened. But I think in all accounts, as I've studied, this is a time of blessing for David. A lot of stress behind him, but he's in a time of blessing. Isn't that when you feel most blessed? Isn't that when you let your guard down the most, when you've been through something really hard and then now you're coasting, it's, your defenses are down? I can't, we don't have time for me to quote to you all the scripture that says be, vil- be, be vigilant and be on the alert. You know, you have an adversary that roars around like a lion seeking to devour you. Be awake, arise, oh sluggard. Be alert to your surroundings. But David, I'm sure in this season of blessing had let his guard down. Stop for just a second. What season are you in? What season are you in? Is it a high stress season or season where you're blessed and you're coasting? For David, he stood tall. He had taken care of a lot of enemies. He established Jerusalem as the, the capital and he was standing tall, which harkens me to 1 Corinthians 10, 12, a warning for us. It says in these seasons of blessing. So if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. Let's look now. It's 2 Samuel 12. We'll read these first few verses. The easiest way today is just to follow with me on the screen. And that later I want you to read 2 Samuel 11 and 12, those two chapters on your own and dig deeper if you can. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. I won't bore you, but the Hebrew word here really extenuates it. Like it's, it's, the Hebrew would say it's another level of beauty. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. That idea there is she had gone through the religious stuff. Hear me for a second, even look at me. She had gone through, she was doing the religious stuff. Which to me might mean that How we handle ourselves on Saturday night could be more important than if we're here on Sunday morning. She was doing a lot of the religious stuff really, really right. And then she returned to her house and the woman conceived and she sent and told David the words he never wanted to hear. I am pregnant. David, standing firm, standing tall, surveying the kingdom. It was a spring day. I didn't put verse one up, but if you have an open Bible, you're going to read later. It said it was a spring day and he had sent the army's off to war. We love spring, don't we? We're right on the, on the cusp of spring. And we, even though we're not a big winter wonderland, we, we just enjoy spring, right? To emerge a little bit from our meek and mild winter in Mississippi. But we have rites of spring, don't we? Some of you are baseball fans. I was talking to one uh, before the first service today and we think of the Cactus League and the Grapefruit League. I mean, it's about time to, to tip off. College baseball, I think, started uh, yesterday or Friday. And we're just, there's just a, something that happens in spring. And as I study this week, I learned that they go off to war in the spring because it's simple. The weather's good and there's food to eat. And they, they went off to war, but David wasn't in the fight. David was on the couch coasting. 
there's probably some lesson here, do you think? And David, using the power of his kingdom for selfish means. All too common, isn't it? What's true today is true in the ancient world. A man with money, a man with power, a man with influence makes a move and he, he sees someone as his property. And what I love about the scripture, hear me, everybody, hear me. What I love about this scripture, you might have missed it. It just doesn't say there was a hot chick on the roof. It says her name. Her name was Bathsheba. I've always thought that was funny because she's bathing, but I'm the only one. But anyway, her name's Bathsheba. She's on the roof. She's a babe. But scripture tells us whose wife she is and whose daughter she is. Do you see that? This isn't just some woman to be objectified. This isn't just your personal property for your pleasure. This is somebody's daughter. This is somebody's wife. And scripture says that to us. And David, because he could, a man with money, a man with leisure, is a lethal, sometimes fatal combination. And he does. He does this. And then he hears the words, I'm pregnant. So David is confronted with one of two options here. One, he could own it. He could reconcile he could make things right. The other, he could cover up. He's a king. You ever tempted to cover up? I think everybody is. You know, Scripture tells us, man, I love the reality of Scripture. The, the first sinner in the garden, what, what did they do, Adam and Eve? They, they hid. They ran and they hid. It's just, it's what we do. Like, don't act like you don't. I mean, I, when I sin, what I want to do, I recoil. I don't, I don't come out into the light. I step a little further in the darkness because I don't want you to know my darkness. That's just who we are. That's the sin that's in our heart. David does that very thing. And you're tempted to cover up. You may not have all the resources of a king. David's got all these resources and he's got a plan. And he was thinking plan A is it. I don't need a plan B or any other plans because I'm a king and I got plan A. And plan A was, had to do with the calculator and bring her home, bring, bring, bring Uriah home, bring her husband home and we'll cover this thing up. But plan A didn't work, verse 9 of 2 Samuel 11. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his Lord. That's what a lab or retriever does. You got a big dog at home, that's what they do. A subservient, I'm just gonna, man, I'm just hanging out at the door here. And Uriah, obviously a good man, a noble man, he did not go down to his house. Uh-oh, David, plan A of cover-up doesn't work. And so David resorts to plan B. Plan A, bring him home. Plan B, get him drunk. But Uriah, I'm sorry, and David invited him and he ate in his presence and drank so that he made him drunk. Now, Uriah was a good and noble man, but he enjoyed a corona every now and then. And he had a few here. And in the evening, he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. Plan A, bring him home, backfire. Plan B, get him drunk, halfway there, but it backfires. Oh, David, you're going to go there. You're going to go to the lowest place humanly possible. Oh, it's okay to have some flaws in our heroes, but David, really. And David's plan C is to have him legitimately killed on the battle. And David hatches this plan. He sends a messenger 
out to the battlefield that draws Uriah out front. Plan C worked like a charm. And when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented, she mourned over her husband. Successful cover-up. Could you imagine as he was trying to cover this up, just the layers and the emotions of panic? Uh, You'd think plan A is going to work. Okay, no, that would have been easy. That would have been smooth. Had to go to B. Elevated levels of stress, anger, desperation. And he did what the most desperate would do. Still playing the kingly card. Still manipulating it. Had Uriah go to the front of the battle so that he could be killed. And it worked. We learn in this story that you can read later that David brings Bathsheba to his house as a, as a wife. And they, have, they give birth here and David is thinking home free Whew. home free and I don't know if you notice I'm, 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 I'm a word guy and if you read this later you'll see there's a lot of sending going on in this passage in this story a lot of sinning of course but a lot of sending David sent to inquire about Bathsheba David sent to have Bathsheba come to him uh, Bathsheba sent a word to the king that she was pregnant David sent a messenger into the battlefield. That messenger sent word back to David. There was a lot of sending going on. And then God says, I'm going to get into the sending game here. And I'm going to send a man named Nathan. You learned about Nathan last week. If you were here or able to listen online, Nathan was a friend. He was a prophet, sort of the, the nation's pastor. And Nathan comes with the word from the Lord. We are called to speak truth into each other's life. Do you know that? And do you know there's a way to do it and there's a whole bunch of ways not to do it? And you need to have a platform before you do that. And you need to do it with gentleness and reverence, Galatians 6 says. James 5 says we win. Those who go astray the wayward, we win them and we woo them back on the right path and we do so out of love. Galatians 6, you who are spiritual, restore those who are caught in sin. And when we hear that, we think of the media, caught, caught on tape, caught on sin, caught, 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 caught. And there's a joy there, right? If you're not the one caught, there's a, ah, gotcha. And that's not the heart of God. That's not the heart of God. And that's why we have a sense of gentleness and reverence. I got a friend, I don't know if he's here today, but Ryan Willis, I love Ryan. He's been a part of our church from the very beginning. And a couple of months ago, I stood up here and I was pulling up my pants the whole sermon, just kind of doing like this. And nobody else criticized me afterwards, not even my wife. But Ryan's like, man, I'm, I'm going to get you a belt, Robert. Do you have a belt? I think my pastor needs a belt. You know, and Ryan had a hard time hearing the sermon because I was pulling up my pants. And every Sunday morning, I put on a belt and I think of Ryan. My point is this. Maybe it's a silly one, but I think we do a good job of picking on each other and pointing out little things. But are we a community where we can go and have the hard talks and do the big things and speak the oracles of God with a spirit of love and restoration? And here's what Nathan does. I mean, I'm a, I'm a fan of direct communication. I've had to have a couple of hard conversations through the years. It, it, pleasantries aren't really a good thing, right? Right when the door shuts, you just jump right into it. I found that's a way to love and be loved. And I've been on both ends of that. And the goal is to come out better. But Nathan, rather, the prophet, the friend, the nation's pastor, he takes this approach. He tells a story. He tells this story, and I'm going to put it up in a second, but I want you to look and try to, try to ascertain here, but just look at the level of self-deception. 
It is shocking. But I'm telling you, you got it. And I hate to tell you, I got it. You ever heard about somebody else's sin and you got mad and you're like, oh, man, kill them. Death. That's horrible. Self-deception. Let's look. This is in 2 Samuel 12, the first four or five verses. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, there were two men in a certain city. Here goes the story. I mean, he, he, you're talking about a storyteller. He's going to pluck. I wish we had music behind us. He plucks the heartstrings. There were two men in a certain city. The one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little lamb which he had bought. And he brought it up and grew up with him and his children. Man, you getting me, Nathan? He used to eat of, more, of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. And it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man. And he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. What? Then David's anger was greatly kindled against this man, this man in the story. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. How dare that rich man take something that's not his? He deserves judgment. He deserves death. He shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Where is this man's compassion? Nathan said to David, not like you and I would say it, fellas. You the man. Not on the golf course, not a compliment. But he said to David, words that pierced his heart, you are the man. And could you imagine in a moment when you are moving from self-deception into reality? Could you imagine the anger and the rage and the sense of justice melting into grief and shame and remorse? And David, you're the man. Nathan continues, thus saith the Lord, the God of Israel. I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. Look at verses 12 and 13. I think we have them back to back. Here's a message for David. For you did it secretly. You thought you got away with it. Cover up. See. Didn't work. But I will do this thing before all of Israel, before the sun. Does that seem vindictive? Does that seem mean of God? David said to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. I want to say something to every minister in the room, to everyone that's on staff here, to any pastors who might be visiting. Sometimes that happens. Uh, someone will take off a week from preaching and they'll slip in to be at another church, sometimes here or to some young men and women that are going to be in ministry. It's a public role. It's a public role and God gives you an opportunity to speak into the lives of other people. And you have a public platform. And there could be a time when you sin and you cover it up and you cover it up and you cover it up and God's going to say, this is going to be made known. What you thought was a secret I will bring out into the sun. And that may be seem vindictive about God toward you, but God knows that sin can't be killed unless it's exposed. That sin itself grows in the darkness and we need that exposure. And so it's not about humiliating a man, but it's about healing a man. And David needed this. David needed what was in secret. 
And I can't be a pastor and say, oh, I, you know, I can have this public praise and all this and not bear any consequences. And God is saying, you're going to be found out. Galatians 6 goes on to tell us, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. You will reap what you sow. That's true. It was true then and it's true now. Imagine the humiliation, the public nature of it all, and the embarrassment. And while you don't wish it on any friend and maybe not any enemy, it was necessary for David's healing. And it's a lesson that every leader and every would-be leader needs to know about and think about. And honestly, it frightens me. Because there's a lot at stake. There's a lot at stake in the decisions that I make. I've joked before, maybe I should be careful. But I've joked before that I wouldn't know how to have an affair. Because I've got this thing where I'm just never alone with a woman unless I'm married to her. And so when a, the staff know this, when someone wants to meet with me, and that's fine, I'm not, I mean, I'm not a, I'm a human, okay? But when someone wants to meet with me and there's, it's not regular business hours, I will text all of our staff because that's the quickest way to do it. Say, hey, I need to meet someone at 7.30 or someone needs to meet me at 5.30 after regular office hours. I, can somebody be there? And that's just helpful. And if there is a woman who's unloaded and shared problems and gotten emotional, it's one time only for me. And I'll be her pastor and I'll be her friend. And if she'll let me, I'll talk to Susan about her and send her Susan's way. Or, or as a church, we, we're able to send people to counseling now. And that's a good thing. But I'm not going to have multiple appointments that way. There's just things that I need to do to guard my heart. And I'm really attractive, so I have to be very careful, as most of you know. I want to give you some bullet points to close. I still got it. I still got it. A uh, few things before we go. Note takers. Here we are. Everyone sins. It's those who cover it up that lose the most. You can't find any virtue in all of Scripture of concealment, containment, and cover-up. None. But so much in me wants to do those very things, and it's reflexive. It's just kind of what's in us. But I'm praying that our church won't be soft on sin, but we can be a safe place. We can create a place where we will truly be a confessional community. We all sin. And we all seem to be so worried about what other people think of us. A man in our church, I met with him this week, he emailed me, texted me afterwards, and he said, hey, Robert, what you preached a couple of weeks ago, don't tell everybody everything. That's what I'm holding on to. Maybe I'm cynical because I'm 50, but I feel like I've got a good, just a few good friends. And then I've got colleagues and associates. I think it's true of you. Even if you're a raging extrovert like me, you just have a few good friends. Hopefully you do have a few good friends. And then you have a bunch of colleagues and associates and then you got some people just trying to use you. You need to know the difference. Second, nothing healthy grows in the dark. Sin left unattended doesn't shrink, it grows. I hearken back to that meeting with the sexaholics. That was every story. So, so deep into pornography that nothing arouses me anymore. So many schemes to hide and to cover up. 
so much carnage and wreckage lying in the wake. Thirdly, it's easier to avoid temptation than it is to resist sin. That's really what I talked about at the beginning. Uh, I'm not saying live the way I live. That's probably not a good idea. I'm just telling you the decisions I've made that helped me because I know that it's easier to avoid temptation than to resist sin. I'm a full-blooded man. Sexual sin is not a physical lust thing as much as it is a miserable soul thing. It took me until I was about 30 years old to realize that. When you're young and you're wrapped in pornography and you're watching sexual images on a computer screen, playing with yourself, men, you think it's just a physical thing. And then you realize that it's not. Something so much more. I know a, a man who's on staff at a church. And we met a good while ago and he bared his burden to me of his vocational unhappiness. He, feel like the, he feels like the church hasn't delivered on its promise of why they hired him. He wants to preach, he's not preaching. He wants to do this, he's not able to do this. He's got to do these other things. He became bitter toward the church and toward the pastor and toward God. And recently I found out that this level of stress has caused him to retreat into a deep life of not just pornography, but sexual sin. It's a miserable soul. For you and I to just say, I'm not going to do this, I'm not going to do this, I'm not going to do this, it's not enough. It's not enough. We've got to find soul satisfaction in the gospel of Jesus that we are loved. Next, just a few more. Most of us are susceptible because we are bored. David, David, bored, sitting on the sidelines, disengaged from the battle. Men, if you're leading spiritually, you're not going to fall into sexual sin. If you're leading spiritually at home, this won't be a big, big problem for you if you're engaged in the battle. Boredom is such a culprit. I see it when I watch some young people, particularly some single folks in our church. I love you guys and gals. I admire you as you lead Red Door, the tutoring ministry for the children in West Fondren. And I see you talk and I hear you talk about these kids that are at risk. And you say to me, man, they're bored. They're bored. These, guys, these boys are really, really, they have no father and they're really bored. And we can see that that's a problem. But just think about this room and think about the comforts and conveniences and luxuries that we have and the boredom is here. And I want to say, men, are you in a fight? Are you in a spiritual battle? Do you know that you are? A couple more will go. The way to break the power of sex, sexual sin, is to give yourself to something higher and better. There's a quote. It's got a few different versions of this quote, but it goes something like this. If your goal is to build a ship, don't pull together people and get them to collect wood and building materials and don't teach them or don't give them task or work, but teach them to look out and see the vastness and surging immensity of the sea. And I think for too long, there's a good chance that quote fell flat. I'm gonna try it with a few of you if you're still with me. But there's a good chance, there's, there's just this reality, I think, in the church, okay, that we just, you know, we want to build a ship, so we, we gather people and resources, and we give them tasks and jobs. But what if we taught people to look and to be enamored and caught up with the surging vastness immensity of the sea? 
And I think that's the gospel story. If we're not living for a higher purpose, if we don't realize we're part of a bigger and better story, we're susceptible to this, very susceptible to this. Lastly, or second to last, or close to last, only a vision for what God has done for you in the gospel will keep you from giving your body away like trash. I've said it before, I haven't said it today, but there's a good chance some of you don't know this, you haven't heard this, but experts have studied women who've come out of a life of prostitution, of, 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 of sex, of prostitution, of pornography, and their post-traumatic disorders are equal to that of soldiers badly injured in battle. Sleeplessness, suicide, deep depression and sadness, an inability to trust, a lack of perspective and goodness in the world. That's real, y'all. Next, this is it. The gospel can cleanse your past and recreate your future. I'm gonna ask our worship team to come up now. As they shuffle a little bit, I want us to pray together. And I wanna tell you something that I told the 930 crowd. When I was a young man and I'd made a decision to go into the ministry, Someone taught me, and I don't know why, but I, I learned or thought I learned at the time that if a man is in ministry, a man or woman is in ministry, and they sin in this area, that they're done, that it's over. And you know, that's man's idea, not God's. And I pray that we would be a church where we could be a burn center for those blistered in sexual sin. I pray that we could have stories of reconciliation. I pray that we wouldn't be a church that gives up on women and men in leadership because of this. That we could walk that road of help and of healing. But here's what I want to say. And I say it with some level of risk. But I can't help but think that there's somebody here today and the reason you're here is that you need to come clean. That your elaborate schemes of cover-up aren't working anymore. And you need to step toward the light. Sin grows in darkness. Would you bow with me for a moment? Not everybody in this room will do this or would be able to do this. And I want to give, my, I want to give props to our single people. We love you and we need you. But I want to ask you if you're married today and you're sitting next to your spouse. If you're already hugging them, would you hug them a little tighter? If you're not touching them, would you touch them? I know some of you are loving me right now. Some of you hate me. But I want you to do this. And for some, maybe it's, you're just doing what the preacher said. You don't want to get caught not doing what I say. But this could be just a display. It could be a little, little message. Men, maybe it could be a message to her that you're going to fight. And look, if you've messed up, I want grace to abound. You know, we're working with some families who are walking through this. Isn't it good? 
Isn't it good? The gospel is so good. I, I say it often. The gospel says to you, there's nothing to prove, nothing to hide, nothing to fear. You can walk in love. You can walk out into the lights. Driving home last night, I was just listening to some music. And I turned up that song by Little Big Town. I wish he was a better man. I just turned it up. Good song. Taylor Swift wrote it. Maybe I'm losing points here. But I just turned that song up and I started singing it. And I started thinking, how many women? That's their heart cry. I miss you. I'm thinking of you. I wish it would have worked out. But it didn't. And you know what? I wish you were a better man. I want to pray today for better men. I'm raising two. After the 9.30, someone came up to me and said, Robert, man, what do you do? What do you do about this? What do you do? And I remember we're just beginning the conversation. Pornography's effects on the brains, how filters work and don't work. Let's begin, let's begin a conversation because we're losing. Squeeze her a little tighter, married man, and just say, I want to be a better man.